You're listening to Rosie on the House. Come on around back Arizona. It is Rosie on the House. Eight o'clock. It is the fourth Saturday of the month. It means we have Farmer Greg in studio with us. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. I always love being here. Always a pleasure and always love the energy that you bring. Before we get to today's topic, though, I must know. Oh, yes. How'd the milling go? Oh, my gosh. So for those of you that don't know what the milling is, uh, a group of us here in town last year got together and purchased a mesquite bean hammer mill. Uh, Brand new, they cost about $15,000, so we found a used one and refurbished it. But we still have a chunk of change into it. And we did our first milling, first public milling. So what we did all the way through May and June was we taught people how to harvest the mesquite beans. And then they could bring them down in five-gallon buckets, and we would mill them for them. And to properly do that, I'm sure you know we had you on the broadcast talking about mm-hmm. it. People can listen to our podcast, I'm sure, at theurbanfarm.org. You've got instructions oh, on yes. how to harvest mesquite beans, so we won't recapture that. But you, we got people collecting beans, brought them down to the mill, and yep. y'all milled up almost 400 pounds of flour. What? I know. Wow. Yeah, it was really really cool. We had it was a 2-day event and you know the general public just came down in droves. It was amazing. We did it at our fruit tree warehouse near 7th Street in Highland in Phoenix and uh yeah, just had an extraordinary time. Now, at 400 pounds, if you got 6 pancakes per pound, we're talking 2,400 pancake, mesquite pancakes we could make with this. <laughs> I suspect it would be double that, but yes, there you go. Now, how would waffles work in this case? It's about the same, at, at our house anyway. Yeah. Um, the the, nice. the pour is about the same. You get about six per Oh, per really? Pound. Oh, you know this. Oh, see, I make pancakes smaller then. If you do two next uh-huh. to each other and then one in the middle, it can look like Mickey Mouse ears. Right. So the kids ah, love the Mickey Mouse ears. Oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> So, yes, we had an absolute blast. There were dozens and dozens. We probably had 80 people come and mill beans. Yeah, it was really cool. And how long will that last? Indefinitely. Uh, What I suggest that people do is they have it milled, take it home, put it in a jar, a glass jar, and stick it in the freezer. And indefinitely. That is too cool. The abundance of what's around us. Oh, is amazing. Yeah, well, you know, and I, I've been saying this for years. There's only one place on the planet that lack lives. It's between our ears. Because when I look out at the abundance in nature, I mean, just think about it. If you're driving around, there's still mesquite beans on the trees. There are millions of pounds of mesquite beans that fall on the ground in the de- desert southwest, I'm sure. And this mill, how long does it take? Somebody brought in a five-gallon bucket. How long does that take to mill that? The actual milling itself mm-hmm. takes about four minutes. For five-gallon bucket. For five-gallon nice. bucket. And out of a five-gallon bucket, if it's tightly packed, you're going to get about six to eight pounds of flour. Very cool. Yeah. Well, we look forward to getting that on our calendar for next, next year. year. I know yes. Jennifer uh, got out when y'all were doing the pickups at Dale Creek. Dale Creek Equestrian Center. Yeah, they were great out there with us. They have 70 native mesquite trees on property, and and uh, they invited us out to harvest. So. Very good. Well, I'm glad that worked out great for y'all. I've got mesquite beans at my house. We're going to make sure and 
bring you a couple buckets for next year. But cool. this Saturday, what are we talking about? Composting and all of its iterations. Okay. So There's I am an iteration to composting. Iterations, yes. Um, I'm not a great big fan of traditional composting, and I do it, but it's not the first place that I go. Uh, the first there's there's actually multiple places or multiple ways at the urban farm that we compost stuff from, you know, the leaf form or their food form down to soil, because that's the whole point. The point is in composting is that you want to make healthy soil. One of the ways that I do it and one of the things that I talk a lot about in the world is this whole notion of sustainable. I know you know that word. Mm-hmm. In fact, what does that word mean to you? Uh, something that will that can sustain. Like uh, I could walk from here to your home, home. Uh-huh. Um, if I had enough water, I could sustain that walk probably without stopping. Yep. If I left here sprinting, I'd be done in about two blocks. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. I couldn't sustain that pace. That would be unsustainable. <laughs> exactly. Well, I so I've been studying this whole notion of sustainability for decades. I've come to the conclusion that sustainability we need to be done with, and people's ears perk up, and it's like, what are you talking about? Sustainability, in my opinion, simply sustains the mess that we've created. It doesn't do anything to proactively fix the problem. So when you look at sustainable practices out there, most of them are just to stretch out the problem longer. You know, it puts a little Band-Aid on it temporarily, right? And so in 1991, I discovered something called permaculture. I like to call permaculture the art and science of working with nature. So how do we step in and work in with nature? Because nature has a very unique way of being sustainable. It sustains itself. It does, but in a very unique way. It's what I, it's called regenerative. So that's really what I like to talk to is what does it take to put regenerative practices in place? So bringing compost from a local restaurant can help sustain the soil in my yard. And it's a linear process most of the time. So the food waste comes in, I make it into compost, and it goes into the soil. But in the notion of permaculture, what we want to do is we want to turn that soil into food that turns it into more food scraps that then go into the compost pile that makes healthy soil, that makes more healthy food that we harvest. You see, it's a circular process. And in my travels over the past 40 years of looking at this whole notion of sustainability, what I've discovered beings put in linear systems. There's a beginning and end. These chairs, this table, these microphones, our cars, the roads, they all will wear out eventually. Eventually. And is we have to put a whole lot of resources into them in order to make them function for our use. Exactly continue to function. What happened in nature, it's this circular thing. So just like I mentioned a moment ago, we have compost, makes healthy soil, we grow food, makes more stuff to compost, we compost it. So that's a circular system. And all all nature systems are this circular system. 
what I like to do at the urban farm is I like to put in what I call a regenerative composting system. Now, is it perfect? It's not perfect because, you know, we've got to do things to make it continue to move forward to a certain extent. But the composting system that I have at the urban farm, the last place, remember I said I wasn't a huge fan of composting? Mm -hmm. The last place that the stuff ends up is in the compost bin. There are multiple other places that that compost goes or that compostable goes before they actually hit the compost bin. Okay. And you might be able to guess one or two of them. Bark, 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 oh, yeah. chickens. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I've been collecting. <laughs> I so couldn't, I couldn't you, <laughs> So you process, you, 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 you increase the turnaround time you're taking that food product and turning it into nitrogen via a chicken <laughs> precisely exactly because the chicken so my chickens there are pets so we don't eat them although i've raised meat birds at the urban farm before um, they get fed some of this food waste and they turn it into a nice little nugget of nitrogen that i i actually take that and i'll put it around the basins of my trees mm. you don't ever want to use chicken poop straight in your garden but if you have basins around your trees you can put it on top caveat here your dog's gonna love it so <laughs> make sure yeah your dog will get in there and eat it if you if you do that but I, I do that i've i've got some strategies for mitigating the dog on that uh, and the chickens give us eggs so and eggshells are great composting Exactly. Well. And what we do is we dry the eggshells and feed them back to the chickens for their source of calcium because mm. they need calcium to make eggs. Right. Um, so that's the first place that this com these compostables go is into the chickens. Second place that they go is into the worm bin. We do worm composting at the urban farm. And what I get out of worms is this amazing soil that I add directly to the garden beds. They have a a, a word called casting, which is just, nice, yep. <laughs> just another nice just way of poop. saying, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So we get these worm castings out of the worms, and that happens fairly quickly. Within 90 days, we're getting this amazing soil. They call it gardener's gold. The third place at the urban farm that the food scraps go. All right, we had chickens. We have chickens. And worms. Worms. Another animal that eats? You don't have any more animals. No, I have to bring them in. Okay. Like Red Gary, is after the break. Gary's not getting it either. He's scratching his noggin. I'm scratching my head. All right. Lay All right. it on us. Soldier flies. Oh. Black soldier flies. They're, these, uh, they're not really flies. They're, they look more like a wasp, and they lay their eggs on rotting food. And what, after about... 22 days we get these grubs that are about three quarters of an inch long and the chickens go absolutely nuts for them so one of the ways that we feed our chickens is with these soldier black soldier fly larvae is what they are then and and do they just automatically show up i mean is there enough soldier flies out there if you threw it in a bin in the corner of the yard off to the side that they just show up or yes kind of 
Yes, kind of. Kind of. It's uh, it's a process, and we're still in experimental stages on the process. Okay. Well, more here talking with the urban farmer, Greg Peterson. We have Farmer Greg now formally uh, talking not just composting, but regenerative practices for our urban farm. Well, as typical, we got through this segment without all of our talking points, but I don't want to move on yet. I want to finish on soldier flies. You were saying uh, kind of yes, kind of no. They do appear. They don't appear. It's, yeah. It sounds like you're still in the experimenting process. Definitely still in the experimenting process with them. And is the, is the goal just to generate food for the chickens? So there's two byproducts of black soldier flies. Uh, byproduct one is the grub that is a high-protein, high-calcium nugget for fish if you're doing aquaculture and for chickens. Um, in some other countries, they actually turn that into a flower, kind of like the mesquite flower we talked about earlier for mm-hmm. humans to eat. They do bug flower. Hmm. I haven't wrapped my head around that one yet. <laughs> um, so that's one of the things is the grub itself. And then there's a casting or a Frass, they call it F-R-A-S-S, frass, that's the leftover poop from the black soldier flies that also is highly nutritious for your plants. We need to do a segment on all the different names of poop from all the different types of animals (laughs) and insects. We got frass, we got castings, we got manure. We'd have some kids listening to that, too. Yeah, there you go. Mom! Guess what kind of poop I'm holding. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Okay, so you got two products for the soldier flies, and we've got that's that's our third use for our compost product, right? At the urban food farm. waste, exactly. and then does it go as number four to the traditional compost? Then anything that's left over at the end goes in the traditional compost. Okay, like this morning we were working on setting up our compost bin, and the thing about compost and it takes a lot of organic matter to actually get the compost going. I've got something here uh, next as it regards to stacking functions. You've mm-hmm. got someone here like PC chicken. Is that like a polite way to say <laughs> um, when your chickens pass, you compost them? Is that the politically correct way? Of- there you go. <laughs> now, PC chicken actually stands for permaculture. Oh, permaculture, permaculture chicken. chicken. Yeah. What we do in permaculture is we look at the the different resources that we have in our space, and we look to see what use are they. We call this stacking functions. So in our industrial food system, what's a chicken good for? Eggs. And? Manure. Farm chores. Packaged Definitely poop. love Hickman's for that. <laughs> Absolutely. But interestingly enough, that, the manure part, is a new part of the process. Mm. That's not something that's been around for all that long. So basically, we get some manure and we get some... Um, meat and eggs out meat, of chickens, yeah. right? So and I've, you had mentioned raising meat chickens. So yeah. there are different breeds. You wouldn't buy a chicken to lay eggs and be at your meat source as Correct. well. They are completely separate types of breeds. And the ones that we eat, meat, and consume daily never even lay an egg. And, in fact, a lot of them never even live longer than eight weeks. Exactly. Exactly. The the meat birds, uh, like I said, I've raised them meat birds at the urban farm before. And by the time they're eight weeks old, they're almost to the point where they can't walk. Right. They're so, <laughs> so heavy because they're, they're genetically bred to put on meat. And I, interesting story. I think I may have told you this before, but 
the day that I was butchering some meat birds about 10 years ago at the urban farm, one of our laying hens went lame and she couldn't walk anymore. So I figured, all right, well, I'm just going to put her out of her misery and I'm going to butcher her as well. So I butchered a meat bird and, you know, I got these breasts on this meat bird that were huge, right? Something you'd see in a restaurant, huge. And the breasts meat on the the laying hens were about the size of a half dollar. <laughs> That's the difference it makes. That, it looks a lot more when you, they have all their feathers on top. Yeah, but you get exactly. down to the brass of something that's been laying eggs three, four, five years. There ain't much. There's not much left of them. Exactly. So PC chicken or permaculture chicken okay. as opposed to an industrial chicken. So we, we talked about industrial chickens. What we get out of an industrial chicken is something to eat and a little bit of fertilizer. And the fertilizing part is new. Thank you, thank you, Clinton crew over at Hickman's Eggs. Um, in permaculture, we look at that chicken as an asset, as one of our workers in our backyard. And any animals, really any asset that you put in your backyard, could be it a fruit tree or a mesquite tree or chickens or goats or anything like that, you want to see what what they can do for you. So the chickens in my backyard, what do they do for us? Well, I will tell you what they do for me. Please. In my orchard, I've got two trees that are completely consumed by Bermuda grass. Yep. And our chickens that are done laying, I will move out there and I've got these channel link panels that mm-hmm. I put around the tree, put the chickens in there, put water. They will knock out that Bermuda grass in, in no time. a week or two. Yep. Now, that doesn't solve it from it not coming back, but... It controls it. It controls it. Exactly. And I'm not applying chemicals around my citrus trees that I'm eating the produce of. Exactly. Exactly. So they're very good weed eaters if you keep them confined. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, you know, I have, we let our chickens run in our backyard in um, chicken tractors. Mm-hmm. You know, we have chicken runs for them. And they do a pretty dang good job of keeping the Bermuda knocked down. And bug, bug eaters. When you exactly. have in the summertime, when we're watering, Moisture can build up underneath it because some of the waters are sitting on the ground yep. in shade cool areas. And if you're out there with the hose and water gets underneath and the water starts to build up underneath there, you get a lot of bugs. Yeah. You pick that water trough up, the those bugs comes out and nuts. they wipe them out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I kind of hijacked that. I'm not really worried about my functions. I want to know more about your functions at the urban farm. And we'll continue that along with our talking points here with Farmer Greg. When you find yourself in danger, when you're threatened by a stranger, when it looks like you will take a licking, <laughs> there is someone waiting who will hurry up and rescue you. Just call for Super Chicken. <laughs> Y'all remember Super Chicken? Besides, you knew the job was dangerous when you took it. He will drink his super sauce and throw the bad guys for a loss, and he will bring them in alive and kicking. There was one thing you should learn, and oh there was God. no one else to turn to. Call for Super Chicken. <laughs> Okay. Oh my God, that's hilarious! Dudley Do Right was a Saturday slash Sunday morning cartoon. I remember up and, Dudley Do Right, and, and Dudley Do Right had the first part of the show, and then they took the end. But in between, they had all these shorts, and one of them was Super Chicken. No kidding! <laughs> I was waiting for the chicken dance song. It's actually what I've been waiting oh, for. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe we'll have to do a chicken off dance at the end of the broadcast. Well, that's a DJ <laughs> contradiction here to pull it up. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> 
Wrapping up on so, chickens. So, yeah, well, let's wrap up on the stacking functions. It's really the conversation. Okay. The permaculture chicken eats bugs. They eat weeds in our backyard. They make monster diggers. A chicken will dig as well as most any dog. So they're loosening up the soil, helping us. They make poop for us, chicken manure for our gardens. Uh, they give us eggs. So this one asset called a chicken does all of these great things for us. Helps us in our landscape. They're really workers in our landscape. So that's that's stacking functions with a chicken. I have had chickens for over 10 years. Mm -hmm. I cannot imagine ever not having a chicken. (laughs) I know that's a funny thing to say, but I cannot imagine ever not having chickens. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. I've had them actually at the urban farm for uh, 20 years this year. It's nice having fresh eggs. I don't eat eggs. The difference between something out of your yard and something from the store is... The, the pancakes are different color. Yep. The food's different color. Tomatoes. <laughs> you grow them at home from the vine versus what's in the store. Oh, yeah. It is a night and day difference. This is the reason I do what I do. You guys realize that, right? Oh, of course. This is my this is my whole gig. We need to be growing our own food because it tastes better. It's more nutritious. We know what went into it, and it just tastes better because it's more nutri- more nutritious. And we don't have a lot of natural disasters in Arizona, mm-hmm. but there are natural disasters that disrupt our supply chain. You know, that's a, this is an interesting <laughs> conversation. I don't know that we've ever had this one before. Uh, there's, they did a, some research out of the UK, and they found that there is only a certain amount of days of food in any urban area. How many days? I think you've said three. Three, exactly. Three days. So I guess we did talk about it. But we have a three-day supply of food in any urban area. Here's the crazy thing. If there was a whiff that there was going to be shortages of food, I'd say we have three hours of food food in the grocery store, right? Then it's just going to disappear. And I'm not talking about end-of-the-world stuff. I'm talking about a power outage. Fall of 2014 in San Diego County, they didn't have power for three days truckers strike or you know these kinds of things so we really need to be a lot more conscious about where our food's coming from and just the enjoyment of doing it gardening itself yeah working with the earth working Mm -hmm. with the soil so stacking functions so let's just touch on that real quickly because it just doesn't have to do with chickens when i was i went back to school late in life i ended up at arizona state university that time i got my bachelor's and i got my master's my master's is in urban and environmental planning. And one of my planning classes was transportation planning. And we talked about trip stacking. Grocery store, the hardware store, and, uh, and the gas that, station all exactly. at one time instead of three separate trips. Exactly. Okay. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. And it's like, oh, all right. So, you know, in 1991, we were talking about stacking functions. That's a, a really simple version of stacking functions that, you know, that we can use. for people to get it. And then, you know, one of the things that I do, we run evaporative coolers, one for the chickens, one on our house. We take that water, it goes through the evaporative cooler first, and then it goes out into the landscape. So, you know, that's another stacking functions. So chickens are function stackers. Uh, (laughs) You function stack your water. Uh, Are there any other easy function stacking things we can do at our urban farm? Well, the cool thing about stacking functions is if you start paying attention, they're all over the place. And really, the whole purpose of looking for stacking functions is how many times can you use a resource before you're done with it? And so one of my uh, stacking functions for the compost coming into the urban farm, 
the compostables coming into the urban farm, was the worm bins. So let's talk about worm bins because when people say, you know, I have a few kitchen scraps and I want to compost. That is in in the last segment we're going to talk about everything it takes to actually traditionally compost. You need a lot of stuff. And if all you have is kitchen scraps, get a worm bin. You know, Arizona Worm Farms does classes monthly out at their facility on, you know, building a worm bin for underneath your sink. You can actually keep it inside. And they work really, really well. They don't smell. Uh, And, you know, before long, you have this really nice soil that happens, you know, the worm castings that happens that you can put on your garden. So it's really quite simple. You need a tote, um, you know, a tote about what is that about 20 gallon tote, maybe Okay. 15, 20 gallon tote. And I usually get the super heavy duty one with the yellow lids on them. And you put a layer of, you can start with shredded newspaper on the bottom uh, and then put your worms in there. And they're specific kind of worms. You need to get composting worms, put their worms in there, and then you just start feeding them, you know, food. And there's usually there's enough water in the food that it breaks down and keeps it moist in there. Um, And they're really fast. If you put a half a pound of worms in a tote like this, it's not going to smell. And, you know, within three or four days, you're going to see... Worm castings, worm ha- stuff happening. And when you're talking about this tote, mm-hmm. and you said the heavy one, something I'm like a Rubbermaid tub yeah. with a lid. On that lid, do you have to drill holes for air to circulate, or yes. you, can you? Okay, yeah, we, you need a little air circulating out of the top, but you won't smell it. But you won't smell it. Okay, it's really amazing how that how that works. It's and, just. Do worms procreate more worms if you just leave them alone? Oh, yes. Ah, oh, yes. Yeah. So you, know, you have enough for fishing. That would be my department. Oh, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Well, these are... and these Well, are, and fishing, if you catch fish... There we go. You can stack a lot of functions with fish. <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> right? A lot of butter, garlic, and... <laughs> hey, Pocahontas yeah. and exactly. Sacagawea with the corn and the planting and the pilgrims. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm getting hungry. <laughs> well, I, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but my first business here in the 1970s... I used to clean, service, and build fish ponds for people from 1975 to 1984. That's what I did. And one of the subsets of that was I used to convert people's swimming pools into fish ponds for them. At, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, I was going into people's backyards and making them into aquaculture ponds. And um, we were raising fish and for, to eat. You know, that was the whole point. So, you know, I was playing playing with that way back then. And as you say, we need to do a broadcast on aquaponics and fish raising. But I won't ask any questions about that because I know we can get completely <laughs> sidetracked down the rail. But we need to put Let's that on the counter that. list. Let's do that next year. That would be cool. That would be cool. Because, you know, if you like protein, um, aquaponics, aquaponics is a certain kind of aquaculture uh, you know, you can raise fish. Uh, my buddy Chad over, uh, over at, oh, gosh, I can't remember the, his business name, but he sells aquaponic systems. He calls them fish-powered gardens. So the fish, this is, this is this regenerative thing again, right? The fish are pooping in the water. That water's getting pumped into the garden beds. It's going through the garden beds. 
the plants are cleaning the water and feeding it back to the fish so that the fish have clean water. This is that circular system that we're talking about. And I have heard of a guy who introduces chickens into that. Like he lets the chicken manure uh-huh. into the water and yep. the fish will actually eat the chicken manure yep. and make it manure again. But it also yeah. makes food for, you know, helps the fish grow yeah. so you could stack an additional chicken function in there. Exactly. Exactly. There, there, it's amazing to me how many ways, when we look to nature, how many ways there are that we can... Um, you know, work with nature rather than against nature. All of these things take water. And mm-hmm. that is, you, you're on a flood irrigated, flood irrigated SRP, yep. which is, you know, if you live in one of those, God bless you, they are just phenomenal properties. I did that on purpose 30 years ago. I've been at the urban farm 30 years. I know you guys have been on the air 31 years, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, 31, yeah. And um, I purposely found a flood irrigated property to buy because I grew up on one when I was a kid. And so a lot of people look at our water resources and say, you know, it's not sustainable to be using water for all these other things. But everything takes water. The generation of food, the transportation of food, bringing it into the market takes mm-hmm. water. You know, bringing in the supplies, are we consuming more water by consuming things that are shipped in? Or if we just grew things ourselves... Are we reducing our water footprint? You know, I don't know that there's an actual study that could, or, or a way validate, you could calculate yeah. that or validate there, it. There but, is, okay. there is a ways it could it could be calculated, and um, you know, that's a that would be an interesting project. I'd get, if I was going back to school to get a PhD, that would be one of my projects. It's like, what's the truth about that? Because you're right. If we're shipping a, uh, you know, this time of year we're shipping citrus from South America, and what is the environmental cost to ship it from South America? In the wintertime, we ship, you know, peaches in, from South America, right? Or Australia. That's, that one even gets me. You and, know. you know, we export a lot just the same um, mm-hmm. to other parts. And you know, that's one thing that always kind of baffled you. Yeah. Like, okay, so yeah. we've got alfalfa farmers here that are exporting alfalfa and mm-hmm. we've got export. Alfalfa farmers over there that are importing it here. Yeah. Why don't we just grow Keep it all in the same place? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And you know, it, it, this has been an interesting uh, episode today because we keep bumping up against this notion of what is truly sustainable. What can we do? You know, I know down near Gila Bend, they're growing all kinds of alfalfa and shipping it to the Middle East. You know, there's a company that does that. Well, and part of it is a Middle East company because they can't Ex- grow their own alfalfa. Exactly. Well, they can't expand their farms, but they have an increased need for alfalfa. So they've been buying land here and, and exporting shipping it, it back. And really what they're shipping is water. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a resource that they're using. And does that make sense? Not really. You know, these are all questions that come up in this whole notion of, what do we do with our food system and how do we make it You know what else work? was in the Gila Bend? The shrimp factory. Did you ever oh, yeah. see the shrimp farm? Oh, yeah. I, I don't think it, I think it went out of business a handful of years ago, but that it's was still an there. interesting concept. Is it's it still there? It, yeah. Is it still in it's, business? Yeah, it is. Oh, hey, you're going to. Oh, there it is. I knew you were going to pull it out. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, we didn't line up a judge, so we're not going to have a winner this time. <laughs> We'll have to get a judge lined up next time. <laughs> and yeah, it is there, ArizonaShrimp.com. 
Yeah, so, there you go. I swore last time I drove by there, it said it looked shut down. But yeah, cool. Well, I recently talked to the guy. Nice. Yeah. So. Well, I'm glad they're still there. Anyway. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So composting. Let's talk about traditional composting. Traditional composting is um, challenging for a multiple amount of reasons, and that's why I always, you know, suggest worms chickens, those are the two simplest other alternatives, as we talked about. Uh, But there's a level of difficulty that starts with the amount of organic matter that you need to compost. And in order to get a compost pile going, and this is what we're talking about, thermophilic composting or or the traditional composting that you think about when we talk about composting. And thermophilic means it's hot. So the compost pile needs to get hot to, you know, about 155 degrees in order for it to do all the breaking down that it needs to do. And in order to get it to that point, you need a lot of organic matter. The way that I've found that works best is the pallet method. Basically, I get four pallets and I wire three of them together in a U-shape and the fourth one gets put on the front, so I have this four foot by four foot by four foot cube that'll hold in my compost. So four times four times four is what? Sixteen. Four times four is sixteen. Sixteen times four again. Sixteen times four is sixty-four, four. right? That's sixty-four cubic feet of organic matter to make your compost bin go. That's, you know, think of a 15-gallon tree tub. Uh-huh. You know, that's, that's easy, right? People know what a 15-gallon tree tub looks like. You probably are going to need 50 of those full of organic matter in order to make your compost go. So that's challenge number one. Challenge number two is getting the mix right. So there's greens and there's browns. Browns are primarily everything that's dried. So what we were mixing this morning, I mentioned we were doing composting this morning at the urban farm. What we were missing, mixing this morning was we had a bunch of leaves left over from the ash tree this past winter. So we were raking those up in the backyard. And then the, the po- seed pods from the ash tree, those are all browns. And you need about 60 to 70%-ish browns in order to get the compost going. And then the greens is anything that's still alive, generally speaking. Uh, In this case, chicken manure isn't still alive, but it's high in nitrogen. So what greens means is that it's high in nitrogen. So one of the things that I use for a green at the urban farm in my composting is the chicken manure. So now you have That's this. That's a lot of chicken manure for a 64 cube <laughs> <laughs> pallet. Right. right. Well, and so what we did this morning, it was interesting. What we did this morning is I've been saving the chicken manure. So I put it in 15 gallon tubs, just, you know, the 15 gallon tree mm-hmm. tubs. So I, I just go in about once every week or 10 days. I clean out the chicken coop and it goes in there and then it just kind of sits and dries out in a corner until I'm ready to put together my compost bin because it takes a certain, you know, it takes, it takes me a few months to collect all of the stuff that we need, all the greens and the browns to make a compost bin happen at the urban farm, even when I'm collecting food waste from a restaurant. 
And that's one thing I love about gardening and farming is it's not something that is done right now. It's not an instant gratification thing. You have to work it. And I love that aspect of it. Slowing down, taking your time and and working with it, not trying to force it, not trying to rush it. Because that's one thing you can't do. You can't rush nature. It has its own pace. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my late friend Toby Hemingway used to say, nature always bats last. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Yeah, and that is the case. That is absolutely the case. So you have your greens, you have your browns, you have at least 50 cubic feet of it. And now you have to get it mixed in your bin. In this case, it's a 4x4x4 bin so that it's, it's... significantly mixed together so that the greens and the browns touch each other and can start heating up. Then when you're building the compost bin, you need to keep it wet. So usually I, you know, I'll put a layer of browns on. Uh, Another thing that we use is straw. Uh, So I'll put a, you know, four inch layer of straw and then I'll put an inch of greens on top, and then I hit it with a hose for a minute or two, okay? And then we're doing this layer by layer by layer. And the interesting thing in traditional composting, we can go five feet tall with the compost bin, and in three weeks, it'll be three feet tall because that's, that's, it's working. It's doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's like cooking spinach. It's, it looks <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You put it in a pot and it shrinks. <laughs> exactly. And uh, so then – once it's all set up and running and it's sufficiently wet, you need to wet it, um, you know, probably in this heat. You need to wet it a couple, three, four times a week to keep it, you know, to keep it damp. And, um, and then after about 48 to 72 hours, it starts heating up and it'll heat up to 150 degrees. And then when it starts cooling down again, the next challenge is you need to turn it. So that's, you know, that's generally speaking on at urbanfarm.org. We have a uh, guide to uh, backyard composting. So you can go check that out at urbanfarm.org. Now, if I started now, that compost, is that going to be ready for my fall garden or my spring garden? Spring garden. Spring garden. Yeah. It takes six to six months or so to make compost. You're more at urbanfarm.org. Farmer Greg, thanks for being here and part of Saturday's broadcast and help educate and inspire everyone to just, just grow a little of their own. Yeah, there you go. Thank you, thank you for having me. Inch by inch, row by row, gonna make this garden grow. All it takes is a rake and a hoe and a piece of fertile ground.